To stay informed about Depolarize, Reconstruct, and any future podcast projects of mine, go to dancokewords.com and join the email list. That's just the stark fact, right? Is that you You might have thought that Christians en masse would say, not Donald Trump, not this guy. And the data says they didn't do that. No, they didn't. Welcome to Depolarize. I'm Dan Koch, and I'll be joined shortly by Ellen Morrow. Depolarize is a show that aims to find common ground at the intersection of faith, psychology, and politics. Last two weeks, we've listened to who we call the 19% white evangelicals who did not vote for Trump or do not support Trump. This week, we're going to be looking at that 81% statistic itself. What is it? How do we know it? How trustworthy is it? What does it tell us about Americans? What does it tell us about evangelicals? But we're also going to be taking a closer look at white evangelicalism in America in general, both today and over the past few decades to understand how we got here. Now, before we do, I got two questions this week that seemed worth answering at the top of the episode today. The first is, what exactly is this co-hosting relationship between Ellen and I? Sometimes it can feel like I'm kind of mansplaining to her or that there's some sort of power differential. What goes on is this. I prepare the episodes. I conduct most of the interviews. I look over the transcripts. I sort of plan out each episode. And then I put all the clips into a recording session. And then I play them back for Ellen in real time. And she responds right afterward. And we have sort of organic discussion. Now, this serves two purposes. Number one, Ellen does not have as much free time as I have, and so she couldn't be involved if it required her to spend dozens of hours per episode. So I'm glad that I can have her. Number two, and this is the big one, I am too close to this material by the time we actually record. Ellen is not. She can be basically a stand-in for the listener, and she helps me understand how this actually comes across to people. And she can answer questions that a listener would have if I have made something unclear in my own presentation. And so that is the main benefit, and that's why I love having her. The second question I got was, who exactly did the 19% vote for? good question. It's actually a mix. Some of them voted for Hillary. Some of them voted legitimate third party candidates like Gary Johnson or Jill Stein. And then at least two of our voters and Ellen wrote names in. Ellen wrote in Ron Paul, who was not on the ballot. I did ask her if she was okay with me saying that. She said, yeah. So anyway, thanks to everybody who was a first season listener and who's hopped back on the Depolarized Wagon for season two. We're glad to have you. Thank you to all the new listeners we've picked up. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed or left a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. And especially thank you to anyone who sent an episode to a friend or a loved one. We really want this show to be a resource for dialogue. Our primary guest today is Roxanne Stone. She's the editor-in-chief of the Barna Group, which is kind of like a Gallup polling or a Pew research, except that they focus specifically on matters relating to religion. Here we go, episode three. So why is this statistic even a thing? Why is this a big deal? Yeah, well, I think to put it in its most basic terms, you could say 
many Christians and many other non-Christians expected that Christian voters would not vote for Donald Trump, that they would not vote for him because of his character, his personal history, statements about God and sin and forgiveness that he made publicly, his overall demeanor, and especially given that conservative Christians have been so critical in the past of leaders with big, bright moral failings, like Bill Clinton, for instance. Don't have to take my word for it. Here is Robert P. Jones from our interview with him last year. You know, so Pat Robertson, for example, you know, went ballistic in the 90s about Bill Clinton and called him, you know, was turning the you know, White House into the Playboy Mansion and was this, you know, terrible person and needed to be kicked out. And what did he have to say to Donald Trump when he had him on the Christian Broadcasting Network? <laughs> oh, no. His closing comments to Donald Trump were, you inspire us. So there was a hope and a belief that Christians would not go for Trump, or anyway, not in as high of numbers as they tend to go for other Republican candidates, right? There was a sense that Trump is in some way quite different than Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush, and that this would show up in the vote. But it didn't. That's just the stark fact, right? Is that you you might have thought that Christians en masse would say, not Donald Trump, not this guy. And the data says they didn't do that. No, they didn't. Well, that's pretty straightforward. It is. That's pretty straightforward. They did not say that. But we don't have to stop there. We're going to look at all the data that the Barna Group and other groups have gathered about evangelicals and other Christians. And we'll look at the biggest changes in white Christian America over the past couple decades. We'll talk about the ways that evangelicals in America have four decades run what you might call parallel institutions, such that they and their children have the infrastructure to live, quote, in their own bubble. And finally, we'll end on a note of compassion for any voter, Trump, Hillary, whoever. Okay, so we have this group, white evangelicals. What is the most basic place to start in figuring out what that means? I would think, what is what does it mean to be white? And what does it mean to be an evangelical? What does that mean? Right. So I can answer the first one. What it means to be white in this context is simply that you would check the box white or Caucasian on like a census form. It just is self-identity of whiteness. That doesn't really change over time. People don't really leave their whiteness behind. They don't leave their ethnic identity much. Many, very few people, Except for that one Rachel. <laughs> yeah, Rachel. <laughs> Most people don't. Uh, and so, but I can't help as much with evangelical. So let's listen to Roxanne. So yeah. Pew Research and the NBC News exit poll and most sort of mainstream research outlets, right? Just a regular media company that has a research arm that's not dedicated to sort of religious research. They right. use self-identification as an evangelical as the main criteria. What does that mean? Is it as simple as it sounds? Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. So those organizations are primarily basing that definition on um, a question that is sort of, is most often phrased, are you evangelical or born again Christian? Yeah. So when people answer that question, they, they could be saying, yes, I'm born again. They could be saying, yes, I'm evangelical. Um, those are not always synonymous, but in, for the purposes of most polling, that's how it's been sort of measured for a long time then they're they're most often also pairing that with white. So most polling firms are saying white evangelical um, to the point where 
an awful lot of people are when they hear the word evangelical, particularly when it comes to sort of polling or political research, they're thinking white. Like it's almost like the sort of invisible qualifier there that everybody sort of recognizes. So another thing that we've seen is that evangelical, where once it was very closely tied to religious beliefs, it's become more and more of a cultural identifier where you may or may not subscribe to the beliefs. There's a decent amount of research out there um, from this last election that a lot of the sort of self-identified evangelicals are not really churchgoers or when you actually ask them the theological, you know, sort of the theological qualifiers, they may or may not qualify within that. So in some ways, evangelical and born again have become cultural markers for a particular type of American. And that's often white Republican. The perceived popular definition of evangelical in some ways has won out in the sense that this is a cultural political group of people rather than one bound by theological beliefs. This is why I think language is so important, because I think most people hear evangelical and they think uh, Jim Baker and Pat, Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson. Yeah. And they don't think about the theology when yeah. how helpful would it be if on those census forms were like, do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Right. Yeah. How helpful would that be to break down those numbers? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's cool that there are these companies who do do that. I mean, Barna and Lifeway, as we talked about, and some other companies as well, who will try and actually break down what people believe in. We're about to get into a bunch of details about that regarding Barna's particular rubric. But yeah, it's interesting. Like, so I don't know if Tyler Perry is an evangelical, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was. But like, no one thinks evangelical. Oh, Tyler Perry. Like, right. Medea goes to jail or whatever. Nobody thinks that. But actually, African Americans are quite likely to have evangelical beliefs. They just don't call themselves evangelical. Right. So we just want to distinguish between self-identity as an evangelical almost everybody who does that will be white but most of the people who self-identify will actually not pass a litmus test that includes actual evangelical beliefs and those who do pass this kind of litmus test either lifeways or barnas or whoever many of those people will not be white but because of that will not consider themselves evangelical even though they hold evangelical beliefs. So we, we understand the problem, right? That's so interesting to me, yeah. Okay, so let's get into the Barna category. So they have a really strict rubric of who counts as an evangelical by belief. So there are three main categories of Christians that we'll hear Roxanne talk about. There are born-again Christians, there are evangelicals, and there are notional Christians. Wait, wait. I forgot that we're going to find out on this episode if I'm an evangelical. I love that you forgot. I'm we are. Already, I've, I'm, now I'm already lost. In fact, no, this is great. This is great because I was just going to tell you what they were, but we're not going to just do that. We're going to quiz you in real time as we learn what the nine tenets of Barna's evangelical test are. And we are at the same time going to determine if you are an evangelical. What Helen. if I'm going to the wrong church? I don't know. I don't know. What will we do then? Okay, so born again, evangelical, and then everyone else is called notional Christians. Never even heard that before. Yeah, it's their own term. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. 
just means people who have a notion that they are Christian but do not meet these other guidelines. Sort of like a non-denominational faith? No, more like a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox or maybe an Anglican. Oh, just not evangelical or born again. It's just other. It's other. Other Other Christians. Okay. So here is what born again Christians are. Born again Christians have two things. Number one, they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Number two. They believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and had accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're a born again Christian by Barna standards. Oh, amazing. Congratulations. You've passed the first test. I feel like I've just been baptized. Okay. So for born again, it's just those two. That's it. Okay. But for evangelical, there are seven more beliefs. Can you be both? Yes, all evangelicals are born again. Not all born again are evangelicals. Are evangelicals. Okay. Yes. Okay. So if you want to make it into Barna's evangelical circle, you have to have seven more items and you have to say that you strongly agree with them. So here we go, Ellen. We're going to find out. Number one, their faith is very important in their life today. Check. Okay. Number two. Believe they have a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians. I would say check whether I'm doing it or not is a different story, but check. Yeah, but you do think yes, you ought to. Check. Okay. Believe that Satan exists. Check. Okay. Believe that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works. Check. Believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. Check. Asserting that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. That's, I mean, accurate? Accurate in all that it teaches. That's the wording. Sure. I'll say check because that's loaded. Basically, the Bible doesn't have to be accurate about like science or something, but if it teaches something. It, that is Oh, accurate. the premise of it, the, the whole purpose of it is correct. Whatever it is meaning to teach, yes. that is true. Check. Okay. Finally, God is the all... Here it all, is. Here, here it is. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. I did not think this would be that easy. Check. I'm an evangelical. Now Barna, I want to know wh- why you're not, but that's a different That's a Yeah, different well, that's okay. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this uh, because I have a whole podcast about my theological beliefs. It's called Reconstruct. You can go listen there if you want. But basically, I don't think I quite hit the born again category for Barna, mostly because of the issue about going to heaven because of believing in Jesus. I, I think I believe that most people go to heaven or everyone goes to heaven anyway. And some of the way they phrase that, I'm not totally sure about. And then I wouldn't hit all the evangelical stuff mainly because of some biblical ideas as well as the literal existence of Satan. So you're just going to have to take my word that even though I'm just a notional Christian, a lowly notional Christian, that I still am one. Are you okay with that? I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm okay with it. It only matters if God's okay with it. Is that a threat? I guess. I guess God's okay with everything if everybody's going to heaven. (laughs) Okay, well, we're not going to open that can of worms right now. So speaking of notional Christians, of which apparently I'm a part, let's talk about that group. So these are just people who consider themselves to be Christian, but don't meet either of those other criteria, the born again or the evangelical. 
Got it? Yeah. Also, I'm just reeling from the fact that I'm officially an evangelical. Although on a little shaky It doesn't turf. matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. I'm in. I just got thrown into the bucket. Okay, you're in. Let's meet right. him. So we got, we've got an evangelical <laughs> and a notional here doing this podcast. So one worry is, of course, that Barna is saying that these are the only three kind of Christians that exist in the world. But Roxanne was clear to point out that that is not what they're saying. Now, we're very well aware that a huge chunk of um, very dedicated Christians in America are not going to fall into those categories because they're Eastern Orthodox, because they're Catholic. And we don't, you know, far be it from us to say, hey, you guys are not actually Christians, you know? Okay, so we've got a handle on who they're talking about. They're talking about evangelicals in a narrow sense by belief, not self-identified evangelicals. So here's the question. Did these evangelicals the ones who hold all nine beliefs. Did they vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump? Ellen, can we get a drum roll? Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. These are my people. Now we really know that they're your people. Oh my God. Here's the answer. So according to the Barna rubric, um, evangelicals voted for Trump. Uh, 79% of evangelicals voted for Trump. So... It's pre, it's it's very similar. Basically within um, the margin it's of basically, error. Basically it's yeah. within the margin of error. Ellen. Here's what I think. I think that I just got put into even a more <laughs> narrow category than I thought I was yeah. before. Yeah. You did. And your crew still voted for Trump basically at the same don't, rate. Don't call them my crew. You just said I've already these are my people. That's on the record. <laughs> I know, but then I found out what they did. <laughs> Well, look, okay. So where are we at here? If you were hoping that the Barna rubric would be a way out of the 81% statistic, you're out of luck. Right? Right. But there is still going to be a lot that we can learn about these evangelicals as defined by Barna versus other kinds of Christians. So for the last two episodes, we were talking about the 19% of the white evangelicals that did not vote for Trump. So were those people that we heard from on the last couple of episodes, were those evangelicals or were they like you identify? Okay. They were self-identified evangelicals. So that's a test that I would not have passed. Like I would not check evangelical on a box. They would. They're comfortable with all of of that. Okay. Well, not they would this is not the Barna test with all nine claims. This is just self-identity as evangelical. Okay. But as we just learned, if you take the much smaller group of actual sort of certified evangelical by belief voters, it's approximately the same About ratio. The same. So it yes. really doesn't matter if they would have checked yes to all nine. In terms of whether or not they voted for Trump, it doesn't matter. But there's going to be a lot of other stuff that we will learn about these group of people. Okay, great. Here's one distinction that is worth making using the Barna data. Whereas for the NBC exit poll, Trump actually did better than Romney and McCain. You remember that? He beat them by like 5%. But among Barna certified evangelicals, he did worse. Here's Roxanne again. So Barna found that evangelical vote for Trump, while strong, at 79%, he had the lowest level of evangelical support for Republican candidates since Bob Dole in 1996. Um, Dole got 74% of the evangelical vote. Uh, Mitt Romney got 81%, according to our rubric, which was the lowest level since Dole. Bush both times got more evangelical support 
uh, McCain got more evangelical support. So that's that's useful. Now, we might still have a problem with 79% of evangelicals by belief voting for Trump, but but though with self-identified white evangelicals, we can say that Trump got a small boost. Uh, we cannot say the same thing for evangelical by belief. He actually did worse. Right. Well, that's that is encouraging to me, I think. Yeah. A little, that's the hope I've been looking for. Well, it's it's certainly different, right? I mean, it's true that Trump did well with them. He did about as well as sort of a slightly below average Republican would do with them. Yeah. Just below, like not as good as Romney, definitely not as good as McCain and George Bush. He beat Bob Dole, but Bob Dole didn't do very well in 96. So it's definitely different than with self-identified evangelical where Trump really had a boost of like five or six points on previous candidates. One thing that Roxanne and I spoke about is that the voting block of white evangelicals is an aging voting block. The average age of white Protestants in America in 1972 was 46. Today it's 53. The average American is only 44. So the average white evangelical is nine years older than the average American. Wow. Of which they are a subset, right? Wow. Yeah. So, here's Robert P. Jones from last year talking about this. They're lost of their own demographics. And one more thing I'll say to the demographic piece that I think makes this more personal for so many of them is they've lost the younger generation. So when they're looking at their churches and they're seeing their grandchildren and their children's you know, friends no longer flocking to the churches the way they did a generation ago, I mean, that's a pretty palpable thing as well that you're seeing even on the inside you're losing uh, grew up on the new generation. About three in 10 seniors are white evangelical Protestants, right? So it's like a third of that, that cohort. But if you look at Americans under the age of 30, it's only one in 10. Uh, so they've lost two thirds of their market share just over the generations that are alive today, right? Well, th- this makes sense to me that young liberal Christians get so much shit. For what? For leaving the fold. Oh, from their elders, you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a pal- as, I mean, as if we've backslidden, if you mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. Well, you think about it in terms of young Christians. Uh, I am certainly part of this wave of people who was raised evangelical, who had some changing of opinions and beliefs, and now do not consider myself an evangelical. So when he's talking about one in three seniors are evangelical, and only one in ten self-identified, self-identified, or, yeah, and only one in ten under thirty are evangelical. I'm 34, but you know, four years well, ago, well, culturally, if you would ask me that in the question, in yeah. the 40s and 50s, it was it was a culture identity. Then, wouldn't wouldn't you agree? Yeah, but what's interesting is that if you ask today, three out of ten seniors will say I'm an evangelical, and only one out of ten people under 30 will say I'm an evangelical. So I'm a part of that group, right? That's that's a like he said, that's a two-thirds market share loss of a certain kind of Christian. Then then it's also correct to say then that white evangelicals are a dying breed. Well, they're they're an aging breed is better than dying. Okay, there still are but, young people. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> you die after you age. <laughs> yeah, but the breed will still exist, but it's a really significant change. So track with me here for a second. We know that millennials are more liberal. I mean, young people are liberal. Are you right? a millennial, Dan? I am technically a millennial, yeah. I'm like the upper limit. You know, limit. I heard that there's a new name. Oh? When, when? How old are you? 34. When's your birthday? 
August of 83. So you're two months older than me. Okay. We have a new name. What is it? It's like Zillennial or something with an X. That's awful. Yeah, but we're, yeah, but, but it is awful, but at least we're not millennials, right? Yeah, I guess I just, I think they should call our generation the people who got internet in junior high. That <laughs> seems good. to be the most salient detail. I was watching detail. a game show today and the girl who's 19, an adult, she didn't know yeah. who Hanson was. She had never heard of Hanson. So she's not. And she's a millennial, so. Yeah, so that I'm makes not you her. feel really out of touch. Yeah. <laughs> if you, <laughs> we toured with Hanson, so that one, that really hits close to home for me. Edit that out. No, Sherwood, <laughs> that's, I stand by this, Sherwood toured with Hanson. That's, we took our engagement photos on that tour, Jaffrey mm. and I. Yeah, I'm not Bop. editing that out. You don't get to choose. Anyway, so millennials and zillennials, if you will, we don't tend to be Republican, just in America. So if we combine that with what we just heard from Robert Jones, think about this. People who would have voted for Clinton anyway, but might have called themselves evangelicals, you know, five, ten years ago, they have left the church, demographically speaking. So there's really two stories here. Number one is, yes, white evangelicals went for Trump big time. But also, number two, white evangelicals are older than they used to be by almost 10 years from 1972 to now. And this group has just not been able to retain the younger generation. And so in this group of white evangelicals, you just don't have very many young people who would have voted for Hillary, even if they considered themselves evangelical. But they don't anymore. And that's maybe the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so, but can we talk about Hillary, though? Because isn't the whole, isn't, aren't most of these people just, like, anti-Hillary? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, a lot of it was more not Hillary than it was, yes, Trump. One of our white evangelical non-Trump voters, Brandon, who we heard from the last two weeks, had this to say about being stuck with only two choices. I think that we get to the point where as soon as there's one Republican nominee and one Democratic nominee... The reasons for going with one person over another have just as much to do with you not wanting the person they're running against as they do that you are wanting that person. I heard a lot of, well, obviously he's not perfect. Like he does this and this and this and this wrong. And I, and I disagree with this and this and this approach, but at least he's not Hillary. Like there was so much of that. It's easy to, when you're stuck with two options even in in your own head, you're going to start to make allowances for this person because they're not that person. And here's Ian Smith, the Trump voter that I interviewed last season, in between the election and the inauguration. You know, for for the fear that the left has of Donald Trump, you know, some people on the right have that equal amount of fear toward Hillary. Right. Sure. Yeah. You know, and that's something that you always got to keep in mind that, you know, it wasn't just about Trump is the best. You know, Hillary not being a top-notch candidate played a lot into it. And like I said, man, I was looking for reasons to not vote for Trump. Hmm. And and I believe, you know, had pretty much anyone other than Hillary been the Democratic nominee, that they would have had a way better chance of winning. Yeah. So this correlates pretty perfectly with much of what Roxanne Stone told me based on their data at Barna. But once you have a Republican presidential nominee and a Democratic presidential nominee, 
your mind is in many ways made up because you're voting party lines, unless you're some, if you're in that middle group. Um, but as we know that middle group is in many ways shrinking or at least losing ground to the sort of extreme sides of each party. So Roxanne, given that, you know, you work for a polling firm and we don't have the wide world of poll data at our fingertips. Nonetheless, I bet there's something you guys have got to have on Hillary Clinton and why she was so distasteful to evangelicals, which, um, as we've talked about, goes a long way to explaining how they voted for Trump. So what can you tell us from the data about them and their view towards her? All right. Well, one of the things that we found, we, we asked, we asked, voters, who are you likely to vote for? And then we sort of followed up with why. Why are you voting for this person because you really like this person? Or are you voting for this person because you really dislike the other candidate? The mo- the majority of Americans said they're they were voting for their candidate because they disliked the other candidate so much. Um, evangelicals and born again Christians were just as likely to be that way, more likely to be that way um, against Hillary Clinton. So well, only one third said that they were voting for Donald Trump because they really like him. Um, so you have one third saying they really like Donald Trump, four in 10 saying they really dislike Hillary Clinton, and then a quarter saying he's the lesser of two evils. So that's still 65% are either yes. voting against Hillary or are voting right. because he's not as bad as Hillary. Exactly. So is this characterization accurate, Roxanne, that compared to the larger pool of Trump voters, born again and most likely evangelical Christians were statistically more likely to be voting against Clinton. They were statistically less likely to be voting for Trump. Is that true? Right. That is absolutely true. So there's both groups are statistically more likely than the general population. If they're voting for Trump to say it's because we dislike Hillary or because He's the lesser of two evils as opposed to I'm voting for him because I really like him. So what we can surmise then is that among people who voted for Trump, the people who were actually pumped about Trump to coin a uh, rhyme were (laughs) not the ones who are evangelical by belief. In fact, the people who are evangelical by belief were less likely to like him and more likely to be voting against Hillary. That's true. Yes, that is true. And it's true. It's more true for evangelicals and born again than any other segment of the population voted for Donald Trump. But it is true of the entire population that voted for Trump as well, is that it was more of a vote against Hillary than it was for Trump. This is what bothers me, Dan. When people say, well, he was the less of two evils. Why? And this is a genuine question. Yeah. Why? And especially if you consider yourself a Christian, why would you vote for evil? Just don't vote or vote third party, you mean? If if you are admitting that they're both evil... If you're mm-hmm. saying one is the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. Now, I know that that's just a, a slang thing that people sure. kind of throw around. But you are admitting 
that you're voting for evil. I don't understand yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's just pragmatism. I mean, people just say, look, someone's going to be in the White House and it is going to be one of these two people. And I have a possibility of affecting that outcome. And I therefore ought to do what I think is best. So if both my options are bad, but one is worse, I pick the less worse one. I get it. Yeah. But what about those numbers there? I mean, this does show a little different picture of evangelical voters than a lot of the common. Yeah. So it sounds like she broke it down and was able to say that the white evangelicals that did vote for Trump voted that way because they were voting against Hillary. Or more so than the average Trump voter, yes. Right. Yes. So evangelicals were more voting against Hillary than the average Trump voter. Are we talking about white evangelicals still or just evangelicals? At this point, it's basically they're all white. But mostly of them are white. Yeah. So everybody voted that way, right? Trump voters voted against Hillary. Hillary voters voted against Trump. Just nationwide. It was like a tug of war almost. Yeah. Between two evils, you might say. Oh, my God. Uh, But evangelicals were even more likely to be voting against Hillary than the standard population. I think that's the main takeaway there, which is interesting and not the kind of thing that you hear a lot. All right. Great. But what about Hillary? You mean, why are they so against her? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, First, we should note that it's not all evangelicals that had a problem voting for Hillary. It's only white ones. Here's Robert P. Jones on that. Um, there are two, there's essentially two groups in the country who attend religious services very, very often. Let's say more than four in 10 uh, or, or four in 10 of them at least attend. And that is white evangelical Protestants who voted 81% for Trump. But the other group that attends at that rate are African-American Protestants who voted 80% for Hillary Clinton. So with that caveat, let's try and get our heads around why white evangelicals have such a hard time with Hillary Clinton. We're going to hear directly from our Trump voters about Hillary next week in greater detail. But here's one of those voters, Joy Patton, on this frustrating choice for her. I mean, what's frustrating is I voted for Marco Rubio in the primary. So obviously I felt like Marco Rubio was much better equipped to do that. Like I would have picked Marco Rubio over Trump. Absolutely. But if I have to pick between Trump and Hillary, I'm still, unfortunately, I'm picking Trump. Yeah. Right. And that's really why Republicans voted for him, because he had the label Republican. Right. Okay. So it was a party vote more than a person vote. My friend, my, my good friend that's part of the Heart Perception Project, that's what Heidi says. She's like, it was a party vote. I was voting for a party. I was not voting for a person. I think a lot of Democrats feel that way, too, honestly. Yeah. So. Really? Oh, yeah. With Hillary? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't heard Democrats admit to that. Longtime listeners already know this, but some of you may not. There is actually a way that you can support this show financially. You may have heard me said how much work it was to put this season together. I'm currently estimating about six or seven hundred hours of work just for this season two. I still have another hundred or two probably to go. And uh, that, you know, that's a lot of time. And if you want to financially support everything here, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize, or you can click the become a patron button at depolarizepodcast.com. I do have some hard costs. I have people who help me with editing. I pay for a transcription service. 
that really helps me put all these interviews together. And all of that costs money. Uh, my, my monthly costs are probably around 400 bucks a month. And so that's before I see a dollar. So if you want to help, I'd love it. You can feel good about helping something that you think is valuable. And at least once a month, patrons get exclusive access to either full interview files that no one else will hear or extra bonus interviews I've done elsewhere or something like that. So you get some exclusive stuff. You get to help something exist that you think is good for the world, I hope. Uh, And uh, you get to feel good about yourself. Patreon.com slash depolarize or become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. I don't think we have exhausted this yet, Ellen. Do you? I think we could no, talk. No, I, I think we could talk for hours on this. Okay, well, let's. we won't go for hours, <laughs> but let's get a little more data about Hillary Clinton here and why evangelicals had a hard time. Ed Stetzer, the editor of Christianity Today, wrote a great article in which he named six reasons for evangelical distaste of Hillary Clinton. Perhaps in the future we'll do a whole episode on her, but for now let's at least go through this briefly. You ready? Yep. Okay, number one. She changed the core language of the DNC regarding abortion. Under her husband, Bill Clinton, it was to be safe, legal, and rare. But in 2016, for Hillary, rare had been removed by Hillary. Planned Parenthood had never endorsed a candidate during the primaries. They endorsed Hillary. What do you think about that? I'm seething. (laughs) But that's unrelated. (laughs) But yeah, so they endorsed her over Bernie. They'd never endorsed a Democratic primary candidate before. And she removed the word rare from the platform. Yeah. Number two, she's seen as like the personification of secularism. Evangelicals see her as the paragon of a view that liberal progress will save the world. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Number three, she never mentions religious liberty. In an age when the vast majority of evangelicals believe that religious liberty is on the decline. I think even Obama did talk about religious liberty a good amount. If even I mean, only... if we're talking about Islam, maybe, but I can't even think about a time when I've heard. No, I think Obama did when he was campaigning. He talked about the importance of religious liberty for conservatives. And, and he stuff. identifies as Christian, right? Yeah, but so does she. She's Methodist. So they both identify as Christian. Uh, number four, she has not spoken candidly about her faith since 1993. Whereas Obama did. He spoke about his she, faith a lot. She's just living it out. Well, some people think so. Some people disagree. But in 93, she was skewered by the media for being honest and forthcoming about her faith. And she backed off. Number five, the common perspective shared by most Americans, not just by evangelicals, is that Hillary will do whatever it takes to get elected and that she is generally hypocritical and untrustworthy. Now, whether or not that's true, it's certainly true that 24 years in the public eye did not help that perception she's had to play politics for 24 years for instance barack obama was greatly helped by the fact that he was a newcomer and had no political baggage when he primaried against her in 2008 yeah yep and then the last one stetzer calls this visceral dislike which is a great term for how evangelicals feel about hillary it's inclusive of a few things her basket of deplorables comment the quarter century of sort of antipathy towards evangelicals, close ties to Planned Parenthood, and the fact that evangelicals often have a problem with women in power. These created the perfect storm for evangelicals, says Ed Stetzer, or anyway, for white evangelicals. 
And here's Roxanne summing this up a bit from her perspective as a pollster. Uh, evangelicals are have a much harder time with women in power. They have a much hard. We have data on that at Barna Group that, especially when it comes to the the president of the United States, as well as of course preachers in pulpits. Right. Um, so th- there's there's a little bit of that that goes into it, along along with the baggage of the Clinton era and Hillary Clinton herself um, and the beliefs that she has again primarily around abortion. She loves abortion. Okay. I don't know that anybody loves abortion. They do. We could talk about that another time, Dan, but I have proof. Well, she is a major politician whose stance on abortion is about as as left as major politicians go. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. There's another thing, too, that we should talk about. In terms of Hillary and evangelicals, from a political angle, she didn't try. She did not campaign to evangelicals a single time throughout the whole campaign. Barack Obama did tons of outreach to evangelicals. My parents each voted for Barack Obama. They are white Republican evangelicals, right? That huh. adds up. Yeah. You know, especially when you lose an election by 110,000 votes over three states. As a Hillary voter, do you wish that she had? I definitely wish that she had, yeah. Because I wish that she had beat Trump. Sure. Yeah. But do you think it would have really helped? Do you think it would have, knowing all those things that Roxanne mm. said. Good question. Do you think it would have helped? I think that she wouldn't have gotten too many. I mean, it's a lot of things. That that Stetzer article is great because it really is sort of all six of those factors. It's like and a maybe bunch more. of ingr- ingredients. It's and a you've lot got of ingredients. Um, but I do think that among the various ways that her campaign failed, not going to Michigan, really, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where she lost, uh, where she has, has lost the race, basically. Um, I think, first of all, there's a lot of evangelicals in those states, a lot of white evangelicals. And I also think that, like, you you make some kind of an effort. I mean, I think that uh, I'm not a political scientist or I don't run campaigns, but she's going to get all the pro-choice women, you know? She's going to get sure. them. Like, she doesn't need to do anything. You'd think, like, an overture here or there to people who are not sort of obviously on the left. And so that's, that's it's a pretty, almost like she didn't even want the white evangelical vote. I mean, of course she wants votes. So I think it feels that way to white evangelicals. But wouldn't that taint her vibe? If, if white evangelical pro-lifers voted for her, wouldn't that kind of, yeah, I mean, it might, I mean, you think about the women's March, uh, both years, excluding new wave feminists and other pro-life groups. It's a tainting of the image thing. It's like a, it's like a religious purity test. You don't want to be too inclusive. Yeah. 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 The, these people are anathema. These do not fit in in our... It's really kind of a religious thing. And so, yeah, I think that, that that is going on on the left, and she probably was aware of that and, you know, acted accordingly in some way because of that. But I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I'm just kind of throwing it out there. And all the emails. <laughs> Plus those emails. <laughs> Let's dive a little deeper into this group of voters, the Barna certified evangelicals, of which you are a part. And even though I thought it was a little shaky, you're going, you're two feet in the deep end. (laughs) Uh, One of Barna's most interesting findings, I think, was related to the various scandals. And there were, of course, many scandals on both sides of the aisle. If you think about the 2016 election, you know that it was characterized by 
story after story after story in terms of sort of scandals, ter- sexual harassment tapes that were released that yeah, the Hollywood access featuring tapes. Donald Trump, the Hollywood access tapes with, around Donald Trump, whether that was fake news like the Pizzagate scandals um, or whether that was Hillary's email, email privacy issues. So all of those, we asked people who voted in the 2016 election about a series of headlines that came out during the election campaign cycle. And we asked them, how much, if any, did each of these campaign headlines scandals really have an impact on your vote? What we saw is that it really had very little of an impact. What this really shows is the sort of the level of uh, bias, the level of sort of uh, confirmation bias that people, people are that really already, already operating their, from. They people already that already minds. made up their minds. And the headline didn't make a difference unless it was for the person that they were against. So Republicans, by and large, said that the each of the sort of scandals of Donald Trump didn't affect their decision to vote for him. On the other hand, they said each of the campaign headline scandals about Hillary Clinton impacted their decision to vote for Donald Trump. And vice versa was true for Democrats. They were very forgiving of Hillary's campaign scandals and were appalled at Donald Trump's and said that his his were the reason they didn't vote for him. So basically, what each of these groups, when they encountered these different headlines that the media put out there, they listened to the ones that were about their enemy and they dismissed the ones that were about their chosen candidate. That is proof, maybe, of Jonathan Haidt's thesis in The Righteous Mind that most of our arguments that we make come after the fact of something that we already believe or feel or desire or whatever. Uh, So you would consider this proof of that theory? Yes. I I would consider that proof of that theory. I would also... I would posit that these headlines could have made a big difference in primaries. The saddest stat that I saw per- personally uh, in that study was that only 5% of evangelicals said that the Hollywood access tapes had a major impact on their thinking. And there's a quote from your boss or founder, George Barna. Uh, here's his quote. Their muted reaction in this case seems like a political rather than a spiritually driven response. After all, the least impactful of the Clinton scandals had more than five times as many evangelicals citing it as a major factor than was true for the Trump sex scandal. Uh, so let's talk about this. What is What was the least impactful Clinton scandal? The least impactful Clinton scandal for evangelicals was calling half of Donald Trump's supporters a basket of deplorables. Okay, so to be clear... For evangelicals by theological belief, we're talking about Barna's evangelicals, not self-described. Five times as many evangelicals said that the basket of deplorables line strongly impacted their thinking, as did the Hollywood access tapes. Absolutely. So 41% of evangelicals said that the basket of deplorables comment affected their decision to not vote for Hillary Clinton, whereas as you said earlier, so 5% of evangelicals. So it's more than five times. times. It's more than, yeah, it's closer to eight times. Oh, so, and gosh. that's the least one. So every one of Hillary Clinton's scandals gained more 
outrage from evangelicals than the basket of deplorables. Is it reasonable psychologically for us to expect that an evangelical who ended up pulling the trigger for Trump for whatever reasons they did? Okay, so just take your average evangelical. They had their reasons. Maybe it was abortion. Maybe it was Supreme Court. Maybe, you know, whatever they are in a person's mind. Is it reasonable to expect them to answer, yes, the Hollywood access tapes had a major impact on my thinking? Or by the time they've already pulled the lever, is there almost no way that they would say that? I I think that the Hollywood access tapes came out so late in the election and people had just already made their decision. I guess probably what people are thinking when you ask them, did it have a major impact on their thinking? They probably think it would have to mean that it is a reason that they didn't vote for right. him. Right, right. That, and that's basically what we were asking. Did okay. this affect your actual vote? Not did this affect whether or not you like the man. Got it. Um, but yeah. did this affect your actual vote? You know, there's also four evangelicals. A little bit of a of a. There's been a long standing tradition of purity being as much the responsibility of women as for men. And so I think there's a lot of ways that those that those Access Hollywood tapes came out and people said, oh, that's Hollywood. Oh, that's that's just the culture of Hollywood. We've sort of tempered our expectations of Hollywood, our expectations of politics in terms of morality. That we wouldn't be okay with that happening in the church, but we're not we're not voting for a pastor. And yet, Pat Robertson told him that he was inspiring. But an average voter might not take that to heart that Pat Robertson said that, right? I mean. Yeah, but the whole. I remember when I interviewed my dad, he was talking, he made some comments very similar to that about Hollywood. Yeah. And it's like people, Trump voters that are just sort of. Um, brushing all of the that Hollywood behavior mentality under the rug, they voted for the Hollywood man. Hmm. That's what I don't understand. Oh, that's interesting. They voted to keep, to make more of the world like yeah. Hollywood, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, yeah, that's true. Um, but it is worth noting that like the, that stuff about the voters only paid attention to the scandals of their opponent. Yeah. That the went both ways. Bias. Yeah. That's both ways. Yeah. So, you know, I was not that impacted by the Hillary emails or put it this way. I was not so worried about the emails actually at all, but I was worried about the amount of money that Bill and Hillary had taken from like repressive regimes in speaking fees. I'm not into that. Now that it's over, I'm like, wow, that was really messed up. But at the time I was like, I'm going to campaign for her. I can't let this. Weren't you going to drive down to New Mexico? I I went to Nevada. I had a little team of friends. We, We went to Nevada for four or five days and campaigned. So I couldn't be thinking, oh, what about the uranium deal with Russia? I mean, you just can't do it. You can't hold those in your head at the same time. It's very but hard. why? You can. Okay. It's hard. You saying you can't, but be, but it's, but because it's hard it's means very hard. you can. You it, just chose not to. You chose not to investigate more and really let yourself feel. Maybe, yeah. Unbiased. So, that yeah, maybe I did. And that, that makes me have a bit more compassion for a Trump voter who didn't look into the Hollywood access tapes. I mean, it's different. I think sexual assault is maybe worse than taking money from dictators, but how much worse is it? I mean, how much worse? That's really hard. 
Mm-mm. You know, this is the lesser of two evils things, and I can't it's get difficult. behind it. It grosses me out. Okay, so you, but I am more pragmatic than you are. Yeah. I think I should make a vote. In fact, I thought it was a big enough deal to keep Trump out of the White House that I went to Nevada. So it's it's just it's really difficult. We have to point the microscope back at ourselves on this stuff. Another issue that I think helps to explain what happened with Trump and evangelicals in 2016 is distrust of major media outlets and the setting up of parallel evangelical institutions that interact very little with mainstream media, mainstream publishers, etc. To set this up, here's a quote from Ian Smith, a Trump voter I interviewed in early 2017, followed by some more discussion with Roxanne. Well, I do believe that the media is a puppet for the government affiliation that they associate with. I do believe the media is bought, and I do believe the media forces the agenda of the people that bought them. Where I do kind of conflict in my own head is I'm not sure that those people are doing that because knowingly doing that, basically. I'm not sure that they know they're being lied to and falsifying information or if they just believe the information, whether it's false or not, you know. Okay, so another thing that you guys found with evangelicals, and I, I found this striking. In early 2016, your polling found that evangelicals were almost twice as likely as any other group of voters, religion-wise, to think that the media was either completely or mostly unfair and subjective. 51% of them said this. And the next group is like 26% for born-again non-evangelicals. Why is there an extremely high correlation between rampant distrust of the media and the nine theological beliefs that you guys count as evangelical? Where does that come from? It's been building for a long time. I think you can point to the isolating characteristics of many evangelical churches, and particularly when you look at the 1990s, the moral majority and focus on the family, and that, that sort of, that evangelical bubble was at its strongest, which was really not so much a distrust of media specifically, but a distrust of the secular world in general. Yeah, John and Ward so, calls it, they set up parallel institutions, basically. Absolutely. So parallel parallel magazines, parallel radio shows, parallel movies, parallel children's books, like the whole deal. So, right, like they are truly parallel. They're not engaging with CNN and, exactly, and NBC. They're engaging in different media, and they're, they're viewing secular media as secular. So as sort of by very definition, like something to be distrusted or at least skeptical of. Yeah, the, the um, fact that... It doesn't share our values. Right. There would be no reason for Newsmax to exist unless there was something really missing from NBC. Right. right. So in the 80s and 90s, there just really was this this isolating factor in terms of media. And so you you had more Christian movies, more Christian music, again, the Christian magazines and news. So there was... A, a way for Christians to separate themselves from the sinful yeah, the infrastructure was built. Right. So that's one factor. And I don't, it, it doesn't come up a lot anymore. I don't think for in the experience of a lot of Christians, but it sort of built an empire that could exist outside of secular media and rooted a fear and distrust and skepticism towards sex, secular media within Christian circles. So that's one aspect of it. Then you have, you have the argument of all conservatives 
that the media is liberal and that the media is inherently liberally biased. It's the academia is inherently liberally biased. And so you're, you're, you're not going to get a real fair representation of conservative values or conservative candidates. There's a lot of fact in that. There's a lot of truth in that. I mean, most, most people and, and the media is admitting it more and more. Most people who work in media industries tend liberal. become a thing that liberal is the opposite of Christian? It's just the opposite of conservative. And so you can have Christians who have liberal social views, but most of them have conservative social views. So if the media is liberal, I'm not going to trust it. That would be the very simple version of the argument. So for instance, gay rights, abortion, religious liberty, um, prayer in schools. I mean, just go down the list, right? Yeah, but it's very confusing to be a liberal Christian then. Right. I mean, what we heard so much the last two weeks is people who are challenging that dichotomy um, saying, look, to be Christian or to be biblical, for instance, in a value is not necessarily to be politically conservative. Right. So there's people challenging this, but it has been kind of the norm and at least 80 percent. Do you think that most white evangelicals, so we'll say most white evangelicals that voted for Trump believe that being Christian equals being conservative politically? There's a question as to whether or not they would say that if asked. And then there's a separate question, which is, do they assume that? Hmm. And I would say most of them, the communities that they are in, that is taken for granted. And it's a pretty big piece of people's identity. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a common assumption. I don't know that they would all say, you know, if you actually ask them, yes, this is how it ought to be or whatever. I don't know that they would say that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly was raised with that assumption, weren't mm. you? Yeah. Yeah. So it's powerful. I mean, it lasted in, in me until college pretty much. I mean, even when I hear the word secular, I still think like anti-Christian. Yeah. Which technically secular just means non-religious. Uh, like, for instance... Um, not being married, but being a domestic partners, a domestic partner. That's like a secular institution, domestic partnership. It has legal ramifications. So it's a far cry from having to like break your Alanis Morissette CD because it's secular music <laughs> yeah, after a church yeah. retreat. We were raised with the word secular being sort of a catch all for. Well, actually, this is exactly what Roxanne's talking about. Why were we raised? such that the word secular meant anti-Christian. Why? I mean, think about that. Was that intent? Because of the parallel institutions. If you could get a Jennifer Knapp CD and instead you get Alanis Morissette, you chose the secular option. But because the infrastructure is there for Jennifer Knapp, you ought to take that. Yeah. If you could get a it Project 86... It is the 86, lesser of the two evils. <laughs> no, they would say it's good. Well, right. I know... I know I, well, I'm Gen- actually thinking about Jennifer Knapp, and I'm thinking less. Well, now she has come out as a lesbian, but back then oh, no, it was different. Oh, that's not what you're thinking about? <laughs> no, I just didn't like. Oh, her. you just didn't like her music. Okay, well, I don't have I'm an opinion. I'm pro lesbian. Okay, well, I'm I I have no opinion about her music. I'll tell you that much. No, but there's something really interesting here, right? Like if you were raised Catholic, for instance, in New England, in our our age, 
you do not think that secular equals anti-religious. No, and you probably didn't rollerblade to Amy Grant. <laughs> no, you probably didn't, right? They did not have parallel Catholic institutions in America in the 90s the way they had evangelical ones. I also didn't believe that dinosaurs were real probably until I was in my late teens. Yeah, we have so we all have stories like that. I have a memory of my mom barging in to my third grade classroom and making a stink about evolution moving whales' noses from the front of their faces <laughs> to the top to be a blowhole. Normal. She oh. did not believe, and maybe still doesn't believe, that evolution did that. That is such a specific. I know. Thing. Isn't that a great one? <laughs> I love that story. And she was looking out for me. But but it's true. So my mom was a Christian school teacher. And she knew the curriculum of Christian books, which were literally parallel. They were their own version. I was being taught holes to poke in evolutionary theory through high school at a Christian high school. We had a parallel textbook that did not teach that evolution was true. That that's yeah. about a good of a definition of parallels you're going to get. I mean, I mean, I don't like that you said literally parallel, but <laughs> it they were not two lines that were going in the exact <laughs> same direction that would never meet. So it's not literally parallel, but it was figuratively very parallel. So simultaneous with these parallel institutions was a pretty huge and very swift change in public opinion about one of the religious rights, most passionate issues, gay marriage. Here's Robert P. Jones again from last year. Right. So if I usually like if I have like one slide to show people and can do that on podcast, but I'm going to we'll do a little imaginary slide on nice. the podcast. Uh, so the first one is uh, the percent of Americans who identify as white and Christian. Right. And we're just going to draw a little chart in our heads from during Barack Obama's presidency, 2008 to the present. 2008, 54 uh, percent of the country is white and Christian. That number today is 43. Right. So during the tenure of our first black president, we've gone from being a majority white Christian country to a minority white Christian country. The other issue to kind of put on the same little grid uh, goes the other way. Um, it is how many Americans support same sex marriage. 2008, only four in 10 Americans support same sex marriage. That number today is six in 10. Right. So if you are a conservative white Christian, that is a head spinning amount of change. Right. For an issue you've been all in opposing a president, first African-American president from the opposing party, and your own demographics slipping, and then let's also throw in the Great Recession. I mean, it's a pretty volatile mix of stuff, and I think, really, it's like, you know, we're going to do an equation now. It's this plus this plus this plus this equals Trump. I think many liberals and, you know, since you're on the West Coast, I'll, I'll, you know, coastal <laughs> elites, uh, you know, I think underestimate, like, what a nuclear event the Obergefell decision was last year. And again, it was just last year, you know, that, that legalized gay marriage across the country. They remember 2004 when George W. Bush got handily reelected running on this values voters platform. There were a dozen constitutional amendments prohibiting gay marriage all passed. Uh, that was just 2004. And here we are and, you know, here we are today. All that's been wiped from the slate. I really do. It really is. It's economic. Absolutely. But this cultural stuff is what I think really gives it its power. You think about these many, you know, white Christians in the country had this sense that, you know, the moral majority, that language that they used uh, so much, um, that they really believe that. And, in, and really in the 70s and 80s, 
you know, there was some truth to it. I mean, the country was with them on gay rights in the 70s and 80s, and in in many ways even on uh, gender roles and kind of how people thought about gender roles. They were with them, but not today. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's this sense that they've lost the center of the country. They are no longer the center of the country. It's it's that bigger sentiment, and all of this is... It's interesting that actually one of our Trump voters sees this reality and is already thinking about the future. I get scared when I see Christians treating Muslims negatively because I believe that someday that will be used to treat us negatively. I think Christians need to start behaving like the minority, not the majority. We've enjoyed a comfortable majority for a long time, and I think that we need to adjust our posture and understand that we're probably in the minority now, and that should affect how we behave and how we act in public circles. And I'm, and I'm honestly afraid that someday, and I believe that this will happen, I believe someday Christians will be persecuted in this country. And I don't know when that will happen, but that is a very big fear of mine. So John Ward, senior political correspondent at Yahoo News, is very interested in institutions. He covers them regularly as a journalist. And John actually connected these two issues, what we might call the moral whiplash on the right and the parallel institutions within evangelical Christianity. Do we also underestimate the role that changing opinions about sexuality, especially gay marriage, transgender issues, played in this election? I think that is one of the most under-discussed or another of the most under-discussed motivators for people who voted for Trump. They have for years, if not decades, certainly since Obergefell, felt like, you know, their view, which is based on their reading of scripture, which by the way, is a pretty common reading of scripture, is quickly becoming uh, the equivalent of being called a KKK member. I have I've encountered a lot of these Trump voters and interviewed them personally who felt like in their presidential vote they had two options they had Trump or Hillary and they felt really worried about this cultural drift that's what a lot of them called it and so they pulled the lever for Trump because they felt like you know and and I sort of felt it was ironic that Trump is their best choice to stop cultural drift moral drift but in terms of sexuality and religious liberty and Supreme Court nominees and other other justices and whatever other judges they felt like he was their best option because they it seemed to me like they were kind of dizzy with the rapid pace of public opinion on issues of sexuality and other moral questions what would you say to a voter like that i think the word dizzy is a great one for it but i think largely evangelicals have gained a doomsday view by a decades long pattern of disengaging from being involved in mainstream institutions and from being stakeholders in their communities. And so they don't know a lot of people who don't think like them. They're not working and living day to day uh, next to people who uh, think differently. They're not stakeholders and don't have political capital in their local communities or their local institutions or their national institutions because they have for a very long time said we are going to stay separate from the world we're going to stay pure and yeah, they've, they've set up parallel t- institutions 
Yeah. Right. And at the same time, they've wanted to say to the culture at large, keep your laws the way we want them. Hmm. It doesn't work that way. You have to be engaged and involved and participants and stakeholders. And not only have evangelicals lost influence and, quite frankly, a, a right to have a say over how things go, they've lost perspective because they uh, only know the rest of the world from, you know, from a distance and from an, through an echo. And so, you know, I had a guy on Facebook recently compare modern day American Christians to the Jews at Masala. And I just thought that is the product of disengaging from cultural and institutional engagement over many decades. You lose perspective. It does sound like you have quite a bit of compassion for them in terms of they do feel dizzy, they feel overwhelmed. And so it's it's more the fault, it seems, is more on the cumulative decisions of the evangelical community and leadership over the decades to disengage less than it is oh, these individual voters are such awful people. Yeah, I, I think generally, Dan, like you have big actors on the world stage and in history, you know, who who really shape things. But I think most people are the product of systems and movements that are so much larger than them, than any of us. Um, right. And uh, so I think that goes a long way towards explaining a lot of behavior and decision-making and choices. And yeah, I mean, the church itself, its its leaders have, have not taught people, uh, have taught people the wrong things in a lot of ways that have had pretty big impacts. What do you think of John Ward, Ellen? I think that I would go to his church if he was a pastor of one. <laughs> you should read his articles that he writes because he does write articles on at Yahoo. Yahoo, y- Yahoo News. Yeah. Did you say Yahoo? Yahoo. What is it? It's Yahoo, I think. Yahoo. I mean, I don't yeah. talk about it. You don't so talk about I don't Yahoo say it very out often. <laughs> what do you think about that? I love that piece about engagement. And I think mm-hmm. that is on point. You cannot disengage with your community and then expect that community to live by your laws, period. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, it won't surprise you also that I liked sort of that note of compassion in his assessment of individuals being caught up in larger streams. Right. I think that's just true of us as people. Mm-hmm. As humans, yeah. So those of us who are listening to this episode or recording this episode, if it, if this may be the case, and feel like we have some sort of moral high ground, maybe we do, for a minute anyway, maybe we don't, but maybe we'll be caught up in some other wave, unbeknownst to us for a while, that will hurt the country or another country. But one thing is for sure, the longer that we assume that we hold the moral high ground, And the longer we allow ourselves to judge our brothers and sisters, the sooner that we ourselves will succumb to pride. And we all know what pride leads to. I'm just thinking about the nose and the blowhole now. What happened? I don't know. Somehow evolution made it so that whales would blow, blow out, out their the top. top. 
it helped them in some way. Maybe surfacing where was it before on the front? Their like eyes? other, yeah, like other fish. <laughs> like other fish have it closer up, and whales have it up top. My yeah. guess is that it's something like the bigger you are, uh-huh. it's not worth it to like have to put your whole body sideways. Like a dolphin pops up, they're they're nimble. Right, yeah. but a whale's like here we go, <laughs> you know. Just glad that's not just... currently happening for larger humans. Like their <laughs> nose isn't just like gradually going up. <laughs> well, we're not underwater, so we don't have the same. But you know, a whale could just barely surface, get some air. Yeah. There you go. I think it was something like that. I don't remember. Oh my god! That's but I remember so, my mom so coming specific. in. And I like that you said that she was looking out for you, but was she? Because she barged into your classroom and probably embarrassed you. Yeah, she might not have barged in. That part might be made up. Maybe she just lodged a complaint. I know there was a conference. There was some sort of teacher thing. There was something. There was something. Sorry, Mom. 